Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Man has a problem. Everybody's agreed. No one doubts that. The question is, what is it? There are all kinds of explanations as to the nature of man's problem. There is a sociological explanation that says that man's problem is his environment, that it is his social conditions, if you will. Now within that broad school of thought, there are subdivisions. Some say that the problem within man's environment is his economic conditions, that uh, we need the redistribution of wealth, and if we had that, it would solve man's misery. Others within this basic school of thought say that the problem is political, that if we could somehow rearrange the political structures, man's lot in life would be a lot better. There's a second possible explanation for man's problems. It is psychological. This school of thought contends that rather than man's problem being external, it is internal. Instead of being without, it is within. Again, there are subdivisions within this broad school of thought. Some would go back so far as to say that man's internal problem is in his subconscious mind, and that for man to be what he should be, he has to come to grips with those conflicts buried in his subconscious. Others would not go quite that far back. They might only push it back as far as the person's mother or father or some kind of traumatic experience in his background. But they would all conclude that his basic problem is within him somehow, and he has to come to grips with that internal conflict if he is to realize his full potential. The biblical answer as to the nature of man's problem is not sociological or psychological, it is theological. But now, having said that, what have we said? From a biblical point of view, what is man's great problem? Well, I suspect if you know anything at all about the Bible, you are probably going to immediately say, well, that's simple enough. Man's great problem is sin, right? Is it? Or is it beyond that? Is there more involved than that? Don't be too hasty and don't jump to conclusions. To give you what I think is one of the most penetrating analysis in all of the Scripture concerning man's great problem, I invite your attention to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, 
and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile affections, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate man to do those things which were not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only to do the same, but also approve of them who practice them. This is an awesome passage of Scripture. In a sense, it's complicated. There are ramifications to this passage that are profound, that stretch the mind. The temptation is to divide it somehow, and many Bible teachers do that. I struggled with this passage as I came to it and wondered uh, how much of it I should teach at one time. And the more I struggled with what's going on here, though it's full, it's pregnant with meaning, the more I concluded that to divide this passage would be to run the risk of missing the point, the major point of what Paul is trying to say here. And that would be tragic. So I am going to take a big bite, if you will, and we're going to plunge into this passage and try to survey the scenery as we jog through it. Admittedly, that's a huge assignment for one message. But I think it's imperative that we do that, that you get the drift of verses 18 to 32, and in so doing that you get a glimpse of what God is really saying is man's great, great problem. Let's begin with verse 18. Actually, verses 18 and 19 are something like a thesis statement for the rest of the passage. It is particularly important that you understand some basic concepts that are spelled out in those two verses. They are several. For example, in verse 18, there is no doubt but that Paul is teaching that men are ungodly and unrighteous. Furthermore, he is saying that men beyond that have suppressed the truth and that because of his ungodliness, his unrighteousness, and his suppression of the truth, God is angry. Now, with that just as an introduction to those first two verses, now let's look at them a little more carefully. He says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, let's just pause there for a second. Uh, first concept in these two verses is that men are uh, unrighteous and they're ungodly. The word ungodly means that they are impious, that they are irreverent. And it clearly describes man's separation from God. The second word is that men are unrighteous. Now that is describing the fact that there is somehow a standard 
and men have missed that standard. They are not right. They are unright, if you will, or unrighteous. Now, most would conclude that these two are related in that man's ungodliness has produced his unrighteousness. So because he is separated from God, he mistreats others in his life. But the first basic concept I want you to see in these two verses is that men are ungodly and they are unrighteous. But there is more. Paul goes on to say in verse 18, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, what does he mean by that? Suppress what truth? Well, I think it is apparent that he is talking about truth about God. That all men, now hear me, all men are ungodly. All men are unrighteous. And all men, according to this verse, suppress truth about God. Well, now that presupposes that all men know some truth about God, which is precisely what Paul goes on to say. He says in verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. Now, verse 19 explains the truth mentioned in verse 18. Verse 19 is claiming that God has made truth about himself known to all men. And so, he says, men have suppressed that truth that all men have about God. Now, understanding that men are ungodly, that they are unrighteous, and that they suppress the truth, you can now understand why God is angry, which is the first statement in verse 18, where Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven because men are ungodly, unrighteous, and suppress the truth they know about him. In verse 17, the apostle Paul said, that the righteousness of God was revealed in the gospel. And now, hot on the heels of that statement, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. In other words, you have to know the gospel to see the righteousness of God. But just open your eyes. The wrath, the anger, which is what that word literally means, the anger of God is plainly seen it's apparent to all. It's revealed from heaven. God is mad. Now, that just brings up all kinds of questions. I mean, just those two verses, which are sort of an introduction to this whole passage, which form sort of the thesis statement for all that follows, those verses bring up all kinds of questions. Paul. What do you mean all men have some knowledge of God? That's almost contrary to everything we've been taught. And how have men suppressed that knowledge? What are you talking about? And furthermore, how does God manifest his wrath so that it's apparent to everybody that God is angry? In other words, Paul, Explain yourself. Now, it seems to me that the rest of this passage, beginning with verse 20 and going all the way through verse 32, is doing nothing more than explaining those three issues. For those of you who like to follow with your pencil, let me suggest that in verse 20, at least the first part of verse 20, he is explaining how it is that all men have knowledge of God. 
Then, in the latter part of verse 20 and down through verse 23, he is explaining the idea of men suppressing the knowledge of God. And then, beginning at verse 24 and going to the end of the chapter, he is explaining how the wrath of God is manifest so that all can plainly see God is mad. Now, those form the three sort of... Uh, pegs around which we're going to develop the rest of the thought. First of all, Paul explains how it is that all men have knowledge of God. He says in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Very simply, this verse is saying, something very profound. Look at it. It's incredible. Since God created the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Did you hear that? God's invisible. His invisible attributes are seen. Huh? The invisible is seen. Huh? That's what he's saying. Invisible things about God are clearly seen. Well, how? He explains. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Very simply, he is saying, God created the world. God created the moon, the stars, the sun. God created the mountains and the trees and the valleys and the rivers and the sand and the beach. God created the earth. And any body ought to be able to look at the creation and conclude there is a God. The creation reveals the creator. Now that's what he's saying. And that's what he means by the fact that all men have some knowledge about God. All men know or at least ought to be able to know. They ought to be able to figure out that God exists just by looking at creation. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on to say that there are some things about God you could figure out by looking at creation. And he tells us what they are in verse 20. That you could figure out something about God's eternal power and Godhead. Now let me take that just phrase, that, that phrase and let me talk about it for a minute. Look at creation. Wow. I mean, this is massive stuff. First thing you ought to be able to figure out is whoever put this here has power. Does that make sense to you? Makes sense to me. All right. So the first thing you can know about the Creator is that He's a powerful being. Secondly, the creation's been here at least as long as I've been living, right? Boy, isn't that profound? And evidently, it's been here longer than my folks were living, or their folks. I mean, I can go back to great-grandpa, right? And according to the books I read, it's been here for hundreds and thousands of years. So this being not only has power, but that power spans the ages. It is eternal power. It goes back to eternity past. So I can know from creation that God is powerful and that it is eternal power. I can also figure out something else. Whoever this being is, he's a whole lot bigger than anybody I ever met on this earth. I mean, I never met a creature that could make a mountain, or for that matter, an ocean, much less a star, or even a planet. So, let's give a word to that. Let's call it God, deity, 
And that's what Paul means by the word Godhead. That Greek word literally means divine nature, the divine essence. So that just by looking at creation, I can conclude that there is a God, that he is powerful, that he has eternal power, and that he is deity, he is divine. Now that's what Paul is saying in Romans 1.20. And it is the first major point in this whole passage that God has revealed himself through creation. That states verse 20 very simply. God has revealed himself through creation. More specifically, he has revealed his power, he's revealed his very deity, yea, his eternal power. Longfellow, in one of his poems said, And nature the old nursery took, the child upon her knee, saying, Here is a storybook thy father has written for thee. Come, wander with me, she said, into regions yet untrod, and read what is still unread in the manuscript of God. And he wandered away and away with nature, the dear old nurse, who sang to him day and night the rhymes of the universe. Ah, God has revealed himself in nature. But there's more. There's this second question. According to Paul, all men have this bit of information, but they have suppressed it. So that he says at the latter part of verse 20, so that they are without excuse. Now that's really jumping to the ultimate conclusion. Uh, he explains that phrase in verses 21 through 23 where he says, because, they are without excuse, because although they knew God, uh, that doesn't mean that they were related to him, it means they knew things about God in this context. That's all he's saying. They knew truth about God. That's what we're discussing. Even though they knew things about God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Now, in essence, these verses are simply saying that man has suppressed the truth about God. Or to say that same thing another way, he has rejected the truth about God. Now let's look at the details. He says in verse 21, they knew things about God, but they didn't glorify him. Neither were they thankful. Well, that's interesting. By looking at creation then, I should know that God is powerful, that he has eternal power, that he's deity, at least he's beyond man, and his power is beyond the present. That's eternal power and deity. And now I think you could add to the list that you ought to be able to conclude that God is good and that your response ought to be gratitude and thankfulness to God. You ought to thank God for the sun that enables us to grow food for the air that allows us to breathe, for all the good things God has given to us. We ought to be grateful to him. But God says instead of doing that, they were unthankful. It was Shakespeare who said, I hate ingratitude more in a man than lying, vainness, babbleness, and drunkenness, or any taint of vice. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, Earth's cramming with heaven and every common brush aflame with God, but only those who see take off their shoes and sit around it and pluck blackberries. Awesome. 
instead of looking at the blackberries and acknowledging your thanksgiving to God that he's given you food to eat, you cram them in your mouth and go on about your business. Man has rejected the truth that he knows about God, and there are, there are dire consequences to such rejection. Paul explains a few. He says, they became futile in their thoughts. The word futile means vain, empty. The word thoughts is what is intriguing. It has to do with the whole reasoning process. Paul is saying that when a man rejects God, he can't think straight. Boy, isn't that the truth? That's exactly what that phrase means. And their foolish hearts were darkened. As you know, heart isn't necessarily emotion. As a man thinketh in his heart, it's used of the mind in the Bible. His heart, his mind became darkened. He couldn't see reality as it really is. It was like he was in the dark and he couldn't make it all out because he left God out of the equation. Things didn't add up. He professes himself to be wise, he says in verse 22. But the truth is, he became a fool. Ari Torrey, the founder of this church, translated this verse, he became a philosopher. And then he said he became a philosopher. Wise man. So what Paul is saying is that instead of responding properly to God, man rejected the revelation of God in nature. And that affected his mind. From that point on, he couldn't think straight. It was like he was in a fog, the teenagers would say. He was in the dark. He thought he was wise, but he was stupid. Now, let me tell you just how stupid he really was. Verse 23, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. This is incredible. He rejects the true and living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and makes an idol. That's what verse 23 is talking about. He changed the glory of the incorruptible, eternal God, and he made an image. He made an image like a man, and he bowed down and worshiped the image. Now, how much dumber can you get? That's about as stupid as you come. That's what he's saying. Only what he's saying is it's willful. They knew, they should have known, they rejected. That's the problem. Now, in verse 23, there is a progression in idolatry. Starts off with making images of man. Then you make images of birds. Then you make images of four-footed beasts. Then you end up making images of creeping things. A lot of commentators have pointed out that Paul probably has in mind the polytheism and idolatry of the ancient world so that the images of man are coming from mythology as in the Greeks and in the Romans. And when you talk about worshiping animals, you get down to the Egyptians who, work, who worship such things as the bull and the cat and the crocodile. Now just imagine the progression from man to a bird to an animal to a spider. I heard someone give a modern illustration of this. Now this is only an illustration, you understand, but it really speaks. The way we name cars has followed the same progression. We started out calling them Fords, Stutz, Hudson, Edsel, who was named after a man, by the way, Studebaker, Lincoln, men. Then we named them after birds. You ever heard of the hawk or the falcon? Now we're naming them after animals. The cougar, the mustang, the rabbit. I wonder if the python will be next. So Paul says there is a degeneration in idolatry. That we change the 
glory of God into an image. We worship the creature instead of the creator. The corruptible instead of the incorruptible. The temporal instead of the eternal. It's pathetic. But that's what happened to man. So, his conclusion, which is actually stated at the end of verse 20, is they're without excuse. The point of verses 21 through 23 is they knew about God, they knew about him from creation, but they rejected him. So, they are without excuse. Hear me, and hear me well. The reason that all men are without excuse before God is because they know about God in creation and refuse to bow down and worship him. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that just from the basis of creation they could know him. It does mean that from creation they could know about him. That's the whole point of this passage. And I take it, though it's not stated in this passage, but it's clearly implied in this passage and throughout the rest of Scripture, that if they conceded, all right, there's a God, and I want to know him. If they sought him, to use the biblical term, then I think God would send them the gospel so that they could be saved. But Paul's point here is that they rejected the information they do have, God doesn't necessarily feel obligated to send them anymore, that just on the basis of the information they have, they are without excuse. Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, an expositor of another day, illustrates this by saying, suppose there is a class in physics in which a professor is lecturing on atomic science. A student shakes his head and says stubbornly, but I cannot see an atom, and therefore I will not believe it. The professor then explains the observable effects of the movements of the, ad of the atom's components. The boy continues to be stubborn and will not submit himself to the evidence. On examination day, he flunks the course. He comes to the professor to explain, but he is without excuse. Barnhouse says, that which may be known of atoms and their parts is manifest, for physical investigation has revealed it, for the invisible things of the atom components are clearly seen, being understood by the effects that are manifested, so that the student is without excuse. I love it. All right, so we don't see, but we see the effects of what God has done in the world. And your rejection of that leaves you without excuse before God. Without excuse in the Greek text is a forensic term, meaning that as you stand before the judgment bar of God, you're speechless. We'd say you're caught red-handed. You're guilty before God. Now, because men are ungodly, because men are unrighteous and because men suppress the truth about God in idolatry, God is angry. And I believe the rest of this chapter explains the wrath of God. Beginning at verse 24 and going all the way down through verse 32, three times Paul says, God gave them over. Verse 24, he says it again in verse 26. God gave them over. And he says it again in verse 28. God gave them over. In the development of the thought through Romans 1, he is explaining the wrath of God. Because men have suppressed the truth about God, God gave them over. Now, some translations say God gave them up, as if God wouldn't have anything else to do with them. That's not exactly what the Greek text is saying. The idea is more that he gave them over. Now, let's look at this. There's a great deal here, but let's just very quickly run through these verses, and let me give you the 
thrust of what Paul is saying. He says, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All right, in this portion, he is saying that God gave them over to uncleanness. They have rejected, they have suppressed truth about God. They don't know God. They're ungodly. They're unrighteous. So what God did is he let them go, and where they went was into uncleanness. Now, the word uncleanness in the New Testament is often used in connection with immorality. That doesn't mean that it has to always refer to immorality, but in my study of the New Testament, it so often is connected with immorality that that is probably its meaning at least most of the time. Here he says, God gave them over to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And in this context, the lie is a reference to idolatry. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, the Jews called idolatry a lie because the idol purports to be God, and that's not true. That's a lie. So this passage is saying God gave them over to things like immorality and they exchanged the truth of God. They could see God revealed in creation. He gave them over. Uh, they went after idolatry, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. He mentions the creator, and he can't help but say, and praise him forever. So, he is saying in these verses that God gave them over to immorality and idolatry. The principle is this. The punishment of sin is sin. They sinned. They rejected the truth of God. They suppressed the truth of God. So what did God do? He let them go. He gave them over to their sin. So they start out ignoring God, and they end up imitating God. Incredible. Incredible. The image given in these verses over the term give up is something like a man holding a boat in the middle of a river, and the stream is pulling it down, and he turns loose, and the boat just goes pew, down the stream. God, resisting against men's inclination away from him, turns loose, and when he does, they go headlong into immorality and idolatry. God gave them up. A second time, Paul says in this passage, God gave them up. He says in verse 26, for this reason, because they rejected the truth of God, God gave them over to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature. He's talking about lesbianism. Likewise, verse 27, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing that which is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. So he says, God gave them over to immorality, to idolatry, and now to perversion. Lesbianism and homosexuality. It's interesting. They perverted the truth about God. And they end up perverted. They dishonored the truth of God. And they end up dishonoring their own bodies. I don't know how often I've heard this passage referred to I think that uh, most Christians think that uh, Romans 1 is the great uh, denunciation of homosexuality. That God is pronouncing his wrath upon homosexuality. Technically, that's not what this passage is saying. 
If you read the passage, he's not saying God's angry at homosexuals. He's saying lesbianism and homosexuality is the punishment. I mean, that's what he's saying. They rejected God, and God let them go, and that's where they ended up. That's the punishment. The principle throughout this section is the punishment of sin is more sin, and God lets them go, and that's where they end up. William Barclay, who has a set of commentaries on the New Testament and who is a Greek scholar and historian, says there is nothing that Paul says about the heathen world that the heathen moralists had not themselves already said. The vice did not stop with the crude and natural vices. Society from top to bottom was riddled with unnatural vice. Fourteen out of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. Paul was giving a commentary on the ancient world of his time. One last time in this passage, in verse 28, he says, God gave them over. He said, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Now, he's repeating this, and if you follow his thought carefully through the passage, you will see that that is what started it all. They did not like to retain God. They rejected truth about God. They suppressed the knowledge of God. That is the consistent starting point throughout this passage. He repeats it so that you don't lose the thought. At any rate, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased man to do those things which are not fitting. And then he lists 23 sins. This is the longest list, the most exhaustive list of sins in all of the New Testament. You can... Uh, try and put them into categories, that is exceedingly tough. I've tried. In verse 29, he says they are being filled, and he names five. He says they are full of, and he names five more. He then says they are, and he names 13 more. Can you imagine a sermon with 23 points? Let me, let me just very rapidly run through this list. Unrighteousness, which is simply injustice. Some have suggested that that one includes all the rest of the following. There is sexual immorality. You know what that is. Wickedness is just that. It's iniquity or wickedness. Covetousness, by definition, is the desire to have more. Malice is the idea of spite, and behind it is the attitude of wanting to hurt somebody. Envy leads to murder. And some commentators suggest that uh, envy also leads to strife, it also leads to deception, and it also leads to intentional malice. So that envy in that second group of five is perhaps the fountainhead of the other four. Then he lists 13 other sins. He says they are whispers, which means they slander people in private. They are backbiters, which means they defame people either in private or in public. They are haters of God. And that's self-explanatory. They are violent. By the way, this particular Greek word can include the idea of insulting contemptuousness, which I thought was interesting. They are proud, that is, they put themselves above others. They are boasters, they try to impress you with their claims. That particular Greek word was used of imposters. They are inventors of evil, they figure out new ways to commit old sins. And this particular Greek construction has in mind the particular sin of hating somebody. They are disobedient to parents. I don't have to explain that one, you've all experienced it. They are undiscerning. They don't have the ability to hear or heed wise counsel. They are untrustworthy, meaning that they do not keep an agreement. They are unloving. That particular Greek word means that they are without family affections. Oh, could I spend an hour on that one? Without family affections. I wonder if uh, things like 
A man deserting his kids doesn't come under that. Children not taking care of their parents. Abortion. All those sins against the family. They are unforgiving, meaning that they are not willing to come to a truce. And they are unmerciful, indicating that they are without compassion. They have no sympathy. They have no pity. They are unmerciful. He gets down to the end of the list, and he says in verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but they approve those who practice them. That is, there are people who not only do what's in this list of sins, they stand up and give an ovation to others who do them, which is hideous in the extreme. I think that um, you ought to look at this passage carefully. Uh, The ultimate is not homosexuality, folks. The ultimate is not immorality, folks. The ultimate is not even murder, folks. I mean, if you follow the list, granted he mentions the big ones, but he mentions the little ones too. I think we have a tendency to conclude that some sins are worse than others, and there is a sense in which the effects of some sins are worse than others. There's also another sense in which sin is sin. And in this passage, he is saying it's the logical result of rejecting God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says, If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasures of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, and the pleasures of power, of hate. For these, for there are, excuse me, two things inside me compelling with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. And the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous man who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But, of course, it's better to be neither. End of quote. The point in this passage is that men rejected the knowledge they have of God from creation They suppressed it in idolatry. And as a result, God gave them over to sin. I would conclude that man's great problem is that he rejected the knowledge of God in creation and consequently God in his wrath has given him over to sin. I think that verses 18 and 19 spell it all out. Let me give you three words that sum it all up. Number one is ungodly. That's explained in verses 20 to 23. They have rejected God He has revealed himself. They have rejected that revelation. They've ended up in idolatry. The second word, I think, that summarizes this passage passage is unrighteousness. That's covered in verses 24 to 32. Unrighteousness is what man is, verse 21, and what he does, verses 24 to 32. He is ungodly. That has something to say about his relationship to God. He is unrighteous. That has something to say about his relationship with men. And the third word is wrath. Please hear me and hear me carefully. The passage begins, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. How, Paul? How, how, 
How do you look around in society and see wrath? And the answer, my friend, begins in verse 24 where he says, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven in that he gives men over to their sin. Or to put it all another way, the punishment of sin is more sin. What is man's great problem? That he's ungodly? Oh, yes, that's true. He is ungodly. Is it that he is unrighteous? Oh, yes, he is unrighteous. But I submit to you that in the book of Romans, at least, in one of the most detailed analysis of man's problem in all of the Bible, his great problem is not just that he is ungodly and unrighteous, but that God's mad at him. That God is angry. That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against his sin. And that it therefore results in man going deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. So the problem is not just that he is a sinner. It is not just that he has committed a sin or two. That's not his problem. Not from the viewpoint of the book of Romans. But from the viewpoint, viewpoint of the book of Romans, man's great problem is that he has the wrath of God to contend with. So before you solve all of man's problems, you've got to solve that one. You once reject the revelation of God in creation. You say to God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And God... let you go. Aaron Burr was the third vice president of the United States. When he was a young man, he was urged to trust Jesus Christ by his grandfather, Jonathan Edwards. And he refused. He went on to become successful, at least to a degree, after all, he became president of the, uh, vice president of the United States. When he was 48 years old, he killed Alexander Hamilton in a now famous duel. He lived 32 years after that tragedy. When he was an old man, he said to a group of people, and I quote, 60 years ago, I told God that if he would let me alone, I would let him.